Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Text for this morning's sermon is Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we study this verse and apply it, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us illumination by your Spirit, that you would help us to um, help us to think well, and Father, help me to preach boldly, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. <clears throat> So let your minds for just a moment dwell on the words here at the end of this chapter of Malachi. You have wearied the Lord with your words. You have wearied the Lord with your words. While denying God's power, Israel had poured out their weeping, poured out word after word after word upon the altar. They were a living contradiction. At once accusing God of misusing His power and at once denying He had any power whatsoever. It's funny, isn't it, that atheists end up spending their lives talking about God and ultimately simply denying His power or His right to rule? They can't get around natural revelations testimony, and so their logic leads them to not make make a case for no God, but rather to make a case for hating God. That is what atheists end up doing. They begin to argue that his rulings and his providence and his decrees and his attributes are cruel. And they end up saying that God is not just because they have become God's jury and judge, right? Atheists become the jury and judge of God, and they declare that he is unjust, that he is not uh, a just God. Now, let me move in a different direction here and get into something that I don't really want to get into but feel compelled to get into. You've heard of the social justice movement. No one? I'm seeing a few heads nod. The social justice movement. The social justice movement in the Reformed Church today has gone so far as to advocate that white men and white churches should pay reparations for their systemic racism of past ages. Okay? It's... You know, and it's, it's awkward to say these things in a 
sanctuary filled with white people, but here I go. It's quite true that many men in the Reformed churches in our nation were guilty of the sin of racism. Racism is a real sin. It's a terrible sin. And there were many theologians and many individuals and many sessions and many churches that were guilty of the sin of racism. Worship services were segregated. That's sinful, right? Um, Blacks served whites in the church but were forbidden to worship together with them in the church, right? The blacks were in the nursery getting paid to take care of the white people's children while the white people worshipped in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, Some theologians argued for the good of segregation, right? Other older theologians ignored the scourge and sin of chattel slavery under the guise of the spirituality of the church, and even used white supremacist arguments. Okay, I don't think anyone denies these things. They may say them in a little bit different fashion than I just said them, but I don't think anybody would deny any of the things that I just mentioned. But where many Christians disagree is what today's church should do in response to the sins of our fathers. What do we do now given the sins of our fathers before us? Very interesting that we read the the prayer, and that wasn't planned, but the prayer of Daniel, confessing the sins of his fathers, right? Acknowledging that the destruction that he lives in the midst of is because the fathers sinned. But what are we to do in response to the sins of our fathers? Some, Some have made apologies as a session for specific acts of racism in their particular churches. Good for them. That was good action. They went through their notes. They found things that were particularly racist. They publicly repented of them. Good work. Some have once again raised up the doctrine of the spirituality of the church. And they have simply stated that the church should have nothing to say about social issues, including racism. And that's not good. Right? That is a sin. It's a sin of our culture right now. And if the church is not talking about race, then they're just blind to something that's affecting the sheep of the church. Some have stated that we just can't ever confess the sins of our fathers. Though we have ample examples of that in the scriptures, particularly in the book of Nehemiah but also the prayer of Daniel. And I think we could probably come up with a half dozen other off the top of our head. Many have spoken about the concept of racial reconciliation and placed the gospel at the center of that concept of racial reconciliation. As the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down in Jesus Christ. Right? There is racial reconciliation that comes about by the work of Jesus Christ, reconciling even races. Then, then there is the social justice movement in today's Reformed Church, and this movement is calling for reparations for the church's institutional injustices. 
In other words, money needs to be exchanged to make the apology and repentance of today's white people genuine. Thabiti Anyabwile. How do you say that name? Who can say that name? Thabiti Anyabwile. That's it. Thabiti Anyabwile. Reformed African-American pastor said the following things about reparations. Then there are those who rush to tell us reparations won't bring, quote, reparations won't bring reconciliation, will only further the divide, unquote. What omniscience, as if the burying of our heads, refusing to acknowledge wrongdoing and gospel escapism the church has been practicing is healing the divide. Next quote. And, and the hypocrisy of some self-professed conservatives who argue all day long that a person should be able to control their labor but who do not think any recompense is owed for centuries of stolen labor is mind-blowing. It's a glaring inconsistency. Another quote from Thabiti Anyabwile. In the final analysis, I want something much more profound than the country's money. <coughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a bad, bad point to get a cough. I want its moral and spiritual rectitude. I want Christians to follow the way more fully with a glad heart. I want your freedom from guilt both historical and where applicable, personal. Right? And this is all in the context of reparations. And he says, it's not your money I want, it's, it's freedom from your guilt. That's even a worse statement than asking for somebody's money. Right? We know where freedom of guilt comes from, don't we? Where does freedom from guilt come from? Freedom from guilt comes from Jesus Christ and Him alone. Another theologian at King's College named Anthony Bradley, my professor at Covenant Seminary, uh, for, for the best class I had at Covenant Seminary, believe it or not, um, advocates for reparations and state involvement in investigating past crimes involving racism in an article entitled, Finally Healing the Wounds of Jim Crow. Both of these men, it would seem, have been influenced by black liberation theology, but why am I bringing all of this up? Do I really want to wade into this fight about racism and the questions of what ju constitutes justice as a white man in a PCA church? Well, it's our passage in Malachi that brought it up. It's the passage in Malachi that is helpful. Just like these social justice men, the Jews during Malachi's time looked out upon the world and saw the wicked prospering. They looked out and saw, why are the wicked prospering while we're, we're still getting beat down? Right? Meanwhile, it appeared to them that God was neglecting them and even crushing them while the wicked prospered. This is indeed how Bradley and Anyabwile perceived the situation in the church and culture today. White racists prosper while the black church is left to recover from the systemic racism of past years. Bradley clearly views things this way as understood by what he wrote in February of this year. He wrote this. This is simple. Black people in America have relied on God's word to help them survive white people. When you're white and in the dominant culture, you've never needed the Old Testament covenant-keeping redemptive God. Yours became a Christianity of moralism and your kids walked away. 
In other words, he's saying the white racist church has prospered while the black church has suffered, so much so that the white church has never needed a covenant-keeping redemptive God. While his analysis may be true in, a certain, in certain situations and in certain racist, openly racist churches, he paints with much too broad a stroke. What I want to say is where Calvinist doctrine is taught, where Calvinist doctrine is taught and believed, and, and the fundamental doctrine of Calvinism is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the fundamental tenet of Calvinism. Where that tenet is taught, there will be no way Bradley's analysis will hold true. It cannot hold true. If we recognize the the utter sinfulness of mankind, then we will recognize the utter dependence we have upon a covenant-keeping, redemptive God. Right? We are slaves of sin. Slaves of sin, right? All of mankind are slaves of sin. Where the biblical doctrine is taught, where that biblical doctrine is taught and believed, whiteness or blackness will never ever be thought of as enough to be saved. So again, our passage depicts Israel as looking around them and wondering why the wicked are not being punished. It's amazing blindness. What's amazing about that is it's amazing blindness to their own putrid sin. They're looking around wondering why, and and they're in exile because of their sin. And God has been dealing with them, and they're still looking around saying, boy, this is not fair. McKay in his commentary says this, Notice the underlying assumption they were making about themselves. They could approach the God of justice without hesitation. To demand his intervention was a threat to others, but not to them. They did not see anything wrong with their own living. They were right with God. Right? And so this call for justice from God is like great when it's applied to other people. But the call for the justice of God when you yourself are a wicked, hypocritical, foul sinner is asking for it. In other words, there was a real self-righteousness about these Israelites. In calling for God's justice, they thought they were exempt from any sins. In calling for God to act, they thought that they would be passed by, but God is no man's debtor. He will afflict Job because of Job's righteousness. Right? And give him no answer as to why. As it's written in the Psalms, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. God is the arbiter of what is just and what is justice. And given that all men have sinned and fallen short of his glory, calling for his justice is dangerous. It is a dangerous endeavor. It is more likely as you call for God's justice that God will deal with you for your own hypocrisy. Malachi depicts the people saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. 
Look at their prosperity. Look at the way things go so easily for that dominant culture. Look at how pleasant their lives are. They, they never even get colds, right? They never have cancer. Look at how pleasant their lives are. While we suffer, we suffer, we, we live under systemic bondage. While we suffer, and I don't know what God takes, you know, God takes delight in them. Right? In other words, they have looked at their earthly status and have determined because of that that God is not being just. And they are demanding he be just. And what his justice means is equality. They want his justice to rain down. And they are blind to their own sins and their own sinfulness. Here's what I want to say. The justice of God obliterates the boast of all men. The justice of God takes away any man's boast. And Thabiti and Anthony are boasting. And they don't understand God's holiness. They don't understand God's justice. The justice of God obliterates the boast of all men. The justice of God can only be properly applied to mankind, not through reparations or some system of social justice. The only place where the justice of God can be properly applied is in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. If the calculus you use to determine your definition of justice amounts to anything other than the death of Jesus Christ, you are bound to fall short in your definition of justice. And when you think justice is something attained by efforts of man. Well, get ready. The self-righteous who have some kind of excellence lacking in others will force their definition on you. There will be an infinite regress of self-righteous victims who demand reparations. An infinite regress. I mean, as I thought about it today, I was like, man, I want to sue I want to sue Adam. And then I thought, no, I want to sue Eve. Because Eve sinned first. And, and it's because of her systemic sinfulness that I suffer now. Right? It goes back to the first man and the first woman. If we want to get back there, then we'd all be having a court case. Trying to, trying to confess and have a court case and, and put a dollar amount on inherited corruption. Romans 3 says this, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation through His blood, in faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because of the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith. By faith. Not by works. Not by reparations. He's justified by faith. Apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God will also who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. So, if we retain any sort of boast, any sort of idea of superiority, then we deny God His place of being just and justifier. Right? We simply supply our own laws for who is just and who is justifier. We will forget that all men are absolutely dependent upon God for their redemption. The Jews of Malachi's time determined God didn't meet their definition of just. And so they made a complaint that they had determined that God was unjust. Calvin says about this, what they said was that the ungodly and the wicked pleased God, even because they covered by false colors their sins so that they were not convinced of any wrongdoing. They then imputed whatever was evil to their enemies. They did not commonly expostulate with God because he left sins unpunished, but because they received not his aid. Whence we see that the Jews here did not clamor... Listen to this. We see here that the Jews here did not clamor or contend with God through hatred of wickedness, but had only a regard to their own advantages. Nor did they condemn the sins of others, except those by which they received some harm or loss, you know, the ones that affected them, and that they considered none wicked except by those, those by whom they were injured. We hence learn that they did not complain through zeal for what was right, but because they would have God bound to them to undertake their cause like earthly patrons. Do you get what Calvin is saying there? It's like looking at somebody's sins and, and, and not opposing them because, man, that's wicked and God, God is not glorified in your sin and you should repent. It's more like looking at and saying, well, I can... I can get some stuff out of that sin. I can, I, I, I can make God, I can, I can make God my earthly patron by, by, by making something of these particular sins. They did not complain through zeal for what was right, but because they would have God bound to them to undertake their cause like earthly patrons. And this is why I say that justice can never be understood unless it, as a concept, flows from the eternal justice of God in the crucifixion of His Son. The crucifixion of Christ is the declaration that justice is never just unless sin is fully punished, and sin is never fully punished anywhere other than in the Son of God. This is the boast of Christians, the cross of Jesus Christ, not the leveling of the playing field by reparations.
my God, man, why can't you just look at your fellow believer and think he's had a mountain of sin forgiven? And I'm going to make him pay? I'm going to make him pay for his sins? I'm going to add that burden upon his shoulders? When it took the death of the Son of God to redeem that man, am I really going to add this little thing and become that man's oppressor? It's ridiculous. Spurgeon in sermon on Romans 3 said this, The death of Christ gloriously set forth divine justice because it taught manifestly this truth of God that sin can never go without punishment. It is the law of God's moral universe that sin must be punished. He has made that as necessary as the law of gravitation. The law of gravitation he may suspend. The law of justice, never. He will by no means spare the guilty. The soul that sins, it shall die. Cursed is everyone that continues not in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. As the Lord had appointed the salvation of his people... Even this, the dearest desire of his soul, does not lead him to tamper with this inviolable law. No, a substitute will be provided who shall to the utmost farthing pay whatever his people owe. Upon his head the fire cloud shall discharge itself, and into his bosom shall be emptied out the coals of fire. No pardon without punishment. If the question is asked, why not? It is enough to say that as long as God rules the universe, he rules it in wisdom, and his wisdom knows that it would be unsafe if sin were at any time permitted to be blotted out apart from satisfaction received. Christ, therefore, must himself give a satisfaction for sin that this rule may be declared and written upon the forefront of the skies. God will not pardon sin by overlooking it. There must be redemption before there can be remission. It is understanding this concept of the atoning work of Jesus Christ that allows us to forgive those who sin against us. Right? We realize that no work of man will ever lead to reconciliation between men like the great leveling work of God's justice poured out upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And there... And, and there is the social softening in our hearts that allows us to forgive those who sin against us. That's, that's a gospel, that's a fruit of regeneration. Christians forgive sins. And those who don't forgive sins are either not Christians or they, they, they're not Christians. Let's just leave it at that. And to make sure you understand what I'm not just swallowing, that I'm not just swallowing up the biblical doctrine of restitution in a swell of the spirituality of the church, let me say that I would be opposed to restitution of any, I wouldn't be opposed, I would not be opposed to any restitution of any property or money that can be proved to have been lost or stolen because of racist actions in specificity, right? If you, could, 
If you could read a, a report from a session and you get the details and it's clear and both of them confess to it, I'd be like, yeah, restore. Let's be biblical. Just let's get some biblical restitution going on here. You took two cows, you're going to give them eight in return or however many the law requires. But that's specific. It's not just systemic and amorphous and undefined, right? But when the accusation is broad, there will be no way to apply the biblical laws of restitution. The demand will always be for more and more and more and more, right? But we mustn't water down or belittle the justice of God in Jesus Christ's death by making rules that are that allow us to withhold our forgiveness until some earthly factor is put into the equation. Forgiveness must always be available because we are called to comfort those with the comfort with which we have been comforted. And that's having been forgiven by Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven in Christ. Our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. All of them have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. Do you think about that? Do you, do you lighten your step? Do you sing in the shower when you think about that? Well, not so fast. You better start saving some money for reparations. Sins are forgiven. It's a wonder. It's a wonder that our sins are forgiven. Now, there's one last thing I'll say from this passage in Malachi. Notice that the people say two things. First, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Where is He? In the first instance, the people accuse God of unjustly loving their enemies. In the second, they accuse God of being distant, aloof, uncaring, hiding out away from them, not dispensing His justice according to their terms. I think this, this last mindset is the mindset of those who have determined that justice must always be had before the great day of judgment. That God's justice must fully be had before the great day of judgment. Right? And this is the mindset of those who are impatient and will not allow God to execute His vengeance on wicked racists and others. God, God's seeming inaction is objectionable to those who have forgotten both the cross of Christ and the inevitable day of judgment when the secrets of everybody's hearts will be revealed. Right? They have forgotten this. They want justice now, 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 now. Rather than waiting for the perfect, perfect justice of God. There is impatience in all of our hearts as we see the wicked prosper, no doubt, right? We cry out for justice. We cry out for it continually. We see corrupt politicians win elections after elections. We see abortions continue to go on at the Greenville Women's Clinic. We see Christians in Nigeria just treated like trash hundreds at a time martyred, ignored by our media. We see Chinese pastors disappear when they say something wise against their government. We see racists go unpunished. We see rapists and child abusers go unpunished. There's oppression everywhere. There's oppression everywhere in a sinful world, right? 
Because there is sin everywhere. And when we, and we cry out with, with saints who came before us, How long, O Lord? How long? At least we do when we give a damn. Most of the time, we just don't care about the oppression and the sin around us. But when the people of God cry out to God, how long, they next need to remember that the answer is God's to give. He will give the answer. You're asking Him, right? Not not accusing Him. You are asking Him. The answer is God's to give and the anger of man and, and the justice is His to dispense. And that is what we should want because the anger of man does not accomplish the justice of God, the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not accomplish that. It is for this reason that when we cry out in prayer against abortion, we do not take personal violent actions against abortionists. Right? That's God's God's realm. That is not my realm. We always remember that by the standard with which we judged, we ourselves will be judged, right? And we are all murderers. We're all murderers. The justice of God, though, will be far more just and far more perfect. I'll end with this psalm, which is an appeal for God to act, an appeal for God to act. Remember that, an appeal for God to act, which is much different than determining that we must apply our own standards of justice because God is not acting swiftly enough, right? This is to leave no room for the vengeance of God. Psalm 83, a song, a psalm of Asaph, O God, do not remain quiet, do not be silent, and O God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind against you, they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them. They have become a help to the children of Lot. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna who said, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, and let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Let's pray. (coughs) Oh, our Father, we see Pharisees are laying burdens upon their people. 
and laying burdens upon the church. And Father, we pray that we would not so diminish the excruciatingly painful work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That we would not think that adding our own rules for justice and just just little justice would, would somehow help people understand the infinite weight of wrath for sins that was poured upon Jesus' shoulders. <coughs> Father, I pray that we would rejoice in knowing that our sins have been removed from us as far as east is from west. And now, Father, when we see others who are sinning against us, oh, Father, give us the grace to show forgiveness. Seven times 70. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.